well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad that you have joined the program today. We head into a weekend here. Hopefully you've got some uh, plans to make it to the gun range, gun store, maybe even a gun show, depending on uh, where you live. Not in Virginia, apparently, where the uh, state has cracked down on gun shows, at least those with uh, more than 250 people. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, on the program today, we're going to take a closer look at some of the violent crime statistics uh, around the country. You know, gun control advocates are blaming the rise in a violent crime that we've seen in uh, many American cities this year on the, the the surge in gun sales. They say that those two things go hand in hand. Uh, And, you know, if Americans weren't buying so many guns, well, there wouldn't be such an increase in uh, gun related violence, which I got to tell you, I don't think is the case. We're going to get into that uh, on the program. You're going to hear from several uh, police officials from around the country as to what they think uh, is uh, leading to this spike in violent crime. But this crime spike does continue. I mean, here's a headline from uh, New York City today. Shooting surged to levels not seen in years According to the New York Police Department, they say uh, overall crime remains flat. Actually, they say, well, overall crime overall remains flat. <clears throat> the uh, number of shootings increased again in November, this time by 112% compared to November of 2019. Police say that there were 115 shootings in New York City last month versus 51 in November of 2019. For the year, shootings have risen 95% through the first 11 months of 2020 compared with the same time period last year. All right, now, keep in mind, I, I don't think that there's um, been a dramatic surge in gun purchases in New York City. Just saying, right? At least not legal gun purchases. Uh, I don't think that's happening in New York City because New York City has just a, uh, a handful, less than a handful, of gun stores where New York City residents can lawfully acquire a firearm. Uh, So this would suggest that um, the shootings in New York City not being conducted by legal gun owners. Of course, the city makes it nearly impossible to become a legal gun owner in the first place. Uh, Meanwhile, criminals really don't care about the gun laws, much less the uh, laws against, you know, taking an innocent life. Uh, Yeah, they're not touched by New York City's gun control regime. Because they just go around it. But there's also another story. Thousands of miles away on the west coast of the United States. uh, In Pierce County, Washington. The uh, local paper there, the uh, News Tribune. Running a story. The impact of Pierce County's pandemic-related gun sales might surprise you. Now, in Pierce County, Washington, they have seen an increase in gun sales. In fact, uh, they've seen a pretty big increase in gun sales. Uh, The News Tribune reports that Pierce County recorded 20,181 firearm transfer applications in 2019. Remember, in Washington State, you have universal background checks. So all commercial and private sales of firearms are supposed to go through a background check. And in Pierce County, Washington, last year, 20,181 background check applications. Um, In 2020... So far in 2020 through November, over 44,000 firearm transfer applications. Yeah, 
And uh, since more than one gun can be included on a transfer application, it's quite likely that the uh, number of firearms sold in Pierce County, Washington, um, well above 44,000. But again, double the number of firearms, more than double the number of firearm transfers in uh, Pierce County, Washington, including, you know, new gun sales in all of 2019. So what's happened to the crime rate there in Pierce County? Well, the News Tribune says 2019, Pierce County Medical Examiner reported 126 firearm deaths. By mid-November of this year, 112 people in Pierce County have been killed by a gun. Keep in mind, they say these numbers are preliminary and don't reflect the cases currently under investigation. Fair enough. But that's a decline from 2019. That's certainly not a doubling of the uh, number of firearm-related deaths in the county, which, again, if gun sales correlate to more gun crimes or more gun-related deaths, one would expect that in Pierce County, these numbers would be a lot higher than what they are. And as it turns out, not every city in the United States has actually seen an increase in violent crime. The Police Executive Research Forum, uh, and I wrote about this earlier in the week, uh, kind of wanted to do a whole show devoted to it, but I'll just, I'll just mention a couple of these data points. So they recently took a look at, and they, they did a big survey of law enforcement agencies around the country. They spoke with uh, senior-level law enforcement in many cities across the country. And the major chiefs, I'm sorry, the major cities chiefs association, uh, earlier in November, released a report on violent crime data from 67 of its member agencies in the United States, as well as nine agencies in Canada. What they found is that 84% of major U.S. cities had an increase in homicides in 2020. 77% of these cities reported an increase in aggravated assaults. The police executive research forum said, okay, that's interesting. Let's, let's do our own survey. So they talked to an additional 156 agencies and combined that report with the uh, report from the Major Cities Chiefs Association, the 67 big agencies. And what they found was that you combine all of those departments that they looked at, which, by the way, also includes some you know medium-level cities and some smaller cities, they say that uh, 58% of agencies reported an increase in homicides during the first nine months of 2020. 20% of the agencies that they talked to actually reported a decline in homicides. And 22% reported no change. The Police Executive Research Forum notes that the uh, homicide increases were especially pronounced among the largest cities. They say 56 of these 67 major cities recorded a rise in homicides between last year and this. Uh, only 10 of the agencies reported a decrease, and in one agency there was no change. So Milwaukee, 110% increase. Minneapolis, 85% increase in homicide. Uh, Louisville, 79% increase. Portland, Oregon, 68% increase. Fort Worth, 66% increase. Memphis, a 58% increase. Prince George's County, Maryland, which is the D.C. suburbs, a 58% increase. Boston, a 52% increase. Chicago, a 51% increase. The largest declines in homicides, El Paso, which has seen a 66% decline in homicides in 2020. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? 66%. Baltimore County, not Baltimore City, Maryland, but Baltimore County, Maryland, where there's been a 27% decline. 
Uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, a 21% reduction in homicides. And Newark, New Jersey, believe it or not, where uh, homicides are down 20%. That is not the case, by the way, in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, I don't believe that's the case in Camden. Camden was doing actually pretty well for the first part of the year, but uh, crime has been going up recently. So, first of all, it, it appears as if, again, the majority of these cities in which we're seeing a, a, a sharp rise in violent crime, including, you know, again, New York City, um, are, are bigger metropolitan areas. You get outside of those big cities, and they're not necessarily having the same trouble that you're seeing in these major metropolitan areas. What's going on there? Well, in a follow-up report, the Police Executive Research Forum spoke, as I said, to several senior law enforcement officials from around the country, and many of them told very similar stories. Uh, Assistant Chief Heather Morris in Houston, Texas, for instance, said a big thing that we're seeing right now is the number of people on bond or parole committing homicide. We had 28 suspects last year who were out on bond or parole when they committed a murder, and this year we've had 44. The person who killed one of our officers a week ago was out on $100 bond for unlawfully possessing a weapon. We always have people out on bond, she says, or who commit crimes, but the number is far higher this year. Bond reform in some cases is needed, but you have people who allegedly committed violent crimes getting out on bond when they haven't in the past. She said, we've also noticed an increase in the number of documented gang members who've been murder victims. We had about 25 last year. We're at about 57 this year. In Louisville, the assistant chief, Andy McClinton, said, uh, our homicide suspects have remained kind of the same. Most of ours are group slash gang related. We've dealt with that last year and this year. A lot of these killings are fueled by social media. Our biggest problem is that we have kids and young adults who have social media disputes, gang disputes, or group disputes, and they drive around shooting each other. He said, we're seeing a big increase in juvenile shooting victims and suspects. 69 uh, juvenile non-fatal shooting victims this year in Louisville. In 2019, he said they were at 45. In 2018, they were at 38. Uh, they've had 14 juvenile homicide victims in Louisville in 2020, compared to 10 in 2019 and 2018. Uh, in Louisville, obviously, you know, racked by uh, protests throughout much of the year. McClintock says... Um, that COVID has played a, a part in the changes in policing, but the protests, he says, have played a larger part. COVID limited our contact, and that plays a role. He says, but in order to have the manpower to deal with the nightly protests in our downtown area, we had to pull officers from several different locations. Most of them were detectives who were usually tasked with investigating violent crime and arresting folks for it. These resources were pulled to deal with the protests, and that led to increases like we've never seen before. In Minneapolis, Police Commander Charlie Adams said before George Floyd's murder, we were at 13 homicides. After that, he says it kind of went through the roof. We have different cliques that are shooting at one another right now, and there's no particular reason why cliques are taking over the corners with open drug markets. He says uh, our aggravated assaults are up. Most of our shooting victims don't want to cooperate with us during the investigation. So we have younger cliques from the high schools who've been involved in the last couple of murders, and we're trying to get that under control. But with school closed, he says, it's tough to try to track them down. And he notes that Minneapolis got rid of their school resource officers. The, the, the public schools pulled a contract with the Minneapolis police, so there are no school resource officers in the schools anymore. He says uh, we don't have the intel to get to some of these bad actors. He also notes that they're down about 200 officers, and he says after the riot situation where the third precinct burned down, we had a bunch of officers go out with PTSD or just retire. Now, he says, we have to supplement the street patrols with some of our specialized units. We had a violent criminal apprehension team which went out and got our bad guys so that investigators could work their cases 
We had to put them back into the patrol division. Uh, he says many homicides are gang or drug related. We didn't have such a big drug problem the last couple of years because we were on top of it. But once we stopped some of these active patrols, they started taking back territory. That's where we are now getting the shootings and the homicides because it's a territorial thing. In Los Angeles, police captain Paul Vernon says gang homicides are up 22%. Says the ratio of gang homicides to total homicides is about the same. About 53% of homicides in the city are uh, gang related. He says arrests also, though, are down about 32% since May, which amounts to about 500 fewer arrests each week. He says almost all categories of arrests are down by double digits, but arrests for weapons violations are only down about 9%. Vernon says, quote, that tells me that there are a lot of guns out there. Again, in Los Angeles, California, a state with the best gun control laws in the nation, according to Giffords and Brady and Everytown and all the other major gun control groups. Again, more evidence that criminals aren't paying attention to the gun laws any more than they're paying attention to the laws against murder and homicide. And they're getting away with this, again, because of a couple of factors. One, officer retention is down in a lot of cities. It's not just Minneapolis where there are hundreds fewer officers than there were on January the 1st. Same is true in New York State, or excuse me, New York City, Seattle, Washington, uh, and a number of other cities around the country. We've also seen closures of the court system, or at least widespread delays in criminal trials. We've seen uh, major cities like Philadelphia do their part to try to reduce the spread of COVID behind bars by putting criminals back out on the street, right? Either not arresting individuals for certain crimes in the first place, or um, as you know, it's a catch and release system. We'll arrest you, we'll cite you, we'll book you, and then we'll put you right back out there because we don't want you behind bars where you could catch COVID or where you could spread. COVID. Um, one last uh, uh, note here. Uh, Omaha Police Captain Steve Cernovy spoke with the uh, Police Executive Research Forum as well. Uh, they've had about a 153% increase in homicides in Omaha, 35 homicides over the year. He says, we're coming off of a couple of low years for violent crime in 2019 and 2018. So 35, he says, that's a pretty big jump. Um, and he says that they can only attribute 11 of the 35 to gang-related activity. Normally, he says it's about half of the homicides in Omaha are gang-related, but not this year. It's more, it's more like a third. He says we've had six drug-related homicides, though, which is up quite a bit uh, over the past five years. He says, I think a lot of the increase in homicides and non-fatal shootings could be attributed to the COVID environment and our protests. He says we've seen individuals emboldened. And he says, we've certainly been impacted by staffing. We've had a lot of officers out on COVID leave, and we've had, quote, a significant number of early retirements. He also notes that our patrols, officer-initiated activity, traffic stops, way down. He says, we have an active gang unit that does a fantastic job, and they're out there making stops, contacts, and seizing a lot of firearms, but we're having a lot less of our uniform patrol willing to make stops for a variety of reasons. The lack of traffic stops has impacted our numbers and has caused some of those increases. So as much as the gun control advocates would love to pin the blame for the rise in violent crime on new gun owners in this country, that's not what's happening. What's happening, again, a, a, a variety of factors, uh, including the protests that, uh, and the defund police movement in many cities, 
that, again, have left many officers less reluctant to be proactive in their policing and have led to a surge in early retirements for many departments around the country. Right? That's one factor. And then COVID is another factor. Because that also, too, caused police to pull back, to not make arrests for certain crimes. When arrests are made, it's very difficult for that individual to face consequences in court because most of the courts have been closed for much of the year. And so when these officers talk about criminals feeling emboldened, I I believe that that is probably the number one factor in what's driving the violent crime surge in many cities because criminals feel like they can get away with it. And why do they feel that way? Because they can. Because they are getting away with murder. They are getting away with random shootings on city streets. They are getting away with the type of violent crimes that in years past would have been at least slightly more likely to lead to an arrest, to lead to charges, and to lead to a conviction. So there you go. I don't think it's the surge in legal gun ownership that is causing the uh, rise in violent crime. But I do believe that the surge in legal gun ownership will allow millions of more Americans to protect themselves from those emboldened violent criminals. Now, let's get to today's armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report as well. We will start with that from uh, Bloomington, Indiana. The uh, Pantograph newspaper reporting that a former Illinois Wesleyan University professor I'm sorry, did I say Indiana? I think I, think I might have meant Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, former Illinois Wesleyan University professor sentenced on Thursday to a term of probation of four years after he was arrested for shooting into the door of a bedroom where a woman and three children were hiding. So it's not that he was shooting into a door. He was shooting at the woman and the kids. There was just a door between them. Four years probation. That's it. In September, 55-year-old Daryl Brown pleaded guilty to an aggravated discharge of a fireman inside an occupied building. Four charges were dropped as a result of him accepting that guilty plea on that one single charge. He was arrested on December 11, 2016, after he fired 13 rounds into a bedroom door inside his Bloomington home. Beside the door, or behind the door rather, a woman and three children hiding in a corner after Brown became angry at the woman while drinking alcohol, according to police statements. Um, Prosecutor Brad Rigdon called Brown, quote, a monster that night and said he was a threat to the community. He said Brown's use of a revolver to fire at the door was important because he had to stop and reload the gun four times. He said, you don't just put a magazine in it and fire 13 rounds. You have to open the wheel, let the rounds exit the chamber, individually hand place additional rounds in that revolver. He thought about this, the prosecutor said. This was not a man who was just so drunk that he didn't know what he was doing. And the prosecutor asked Judge Casey Costigan to sentence Brown to nine years in prison, which would have been the maximum allowed under the plea deal. Instead, the judge questioned how Brown's circumstances would be better after a prison sentence. The judge said he had more leverage to impose restrictions on Brown now and sentenced him to 30 months probation with an ankle monitor device used to detect alcohol consumption. Brown was ordered not to drink or use substances while on probation and not to have any firearms or dangerous weapons in his home. The judge said substance abuse is a disease, and it's something that does not discriminate. It is a disease that needs to be dealt with on a daily basis. For his part, the uh, professor, or former professor, 
said that the last four years were, quote, complete torture every day. And he was remorseful, took ownership for what he did. He says, all my fault. And there's never been a day since December 11th that I haven't thought about this and what could have gone right as opposed to what have, could have gone wrong. Well, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't buy the judge's argument here. Uh, even if Mr. Brown suffers from a substance abuse problem, as the prosecutor said, this wasn't simply a case of being drunk and not knowing what you were doing. When you reload that revolver, not once, not twice, but four different times, um, you got to think about that. Those are moments, again, the doors in front of you, the screams of that woman and those kids coming from behind that door. And you're putting another bullet, right, into that revolver. Now, I, I, no, no matter how drunk Brown might have been that night, if that's what happens when he gets drunk, he's definitely a danger to himself or others. <coughs> and, uh, excuse me, some prison sentence would have been far more appropriate than the years of probation for uh, Mr. Brown. Uh, hopefully, he takes advantage of the uh, sweetheart plea deal that he got and uh, is able to turn his life around. Today's Armed Citizen story, Akron, Ohio, where an employee of a, a Sprint PCS store, uh, or excuse me, a Metro PCS store, I guess Sprint sold it a few years ago, uh, able to defend himself against a, a robbery. This happened just before 8 p.m. on Tuesday night uh, at the Metro PCS store on Main Street in Akron. According to police, suspect entered the store, immediately pulled a gun, demanded money, uh, and uh, actually took money from the cash register. The suspect then tried to get access to the store's safe. That's when a Metro PCS employee pulled out his own handgun, fired multiple shots at the suspect before the uh, suspect then ran from the store. Officers were able to take the suspect into custody as they arrived on scene. Suspect was hit once uh, at last report in the hospital in serious but stable condition. The identity of that suspect has not yet been released, but uh, when he is out of the hospital, he will be heading to the local jail. There you go. The uh, store employee, by the way, not expected to face any charges. Hopefully will not face any sort of corporate discipline for defending himself against an armed robber. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. We'll keep our eyes out for any follow-ups on that story. And finally today, our good deed of the day from Manchester, New Jersey where an off-duty Manchester police officer helped rescue a missing man and his dog that had been out in the elements uh, overnight. This from uh, 92.7 WOBM. Police got a call in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire from a woman last Friday about her 78-year-old father who had gone missing. Heidi Sarno gave police a description of her dad's vehicles, gave police his cell phone number, uh, and information regarding his medical and uh, uh, cognitive condition. So police start looking for this guy, Fred Rapp, uh, and they're looking along um, uh, with some wooded areas near the uh, Toms River, Berkeley Township borders. Uh, it's a pretty rural area. They're, they're trying to use GPS uh, tracking information off of Rapp's cell phone to find him, but it just kept changing. 
Uh, so they're searching with their drones. They were out on ATVs. They had their Humvee out there. They, they couldn't find Rap. They couldn't find his vehicle. Um, Sergeant Theodore Cook kept trying to make contact with Rap on his cell phone, just kept calling, calling, you know, and, uh, hoping at some point he's going to get an answer. The day after, so this is now Saturday, the day after Rap was reported missing by his daughter, Rap calls Sergeant Cook and said, hey, I crashed my vehicle in a wooded area. I don't know where I am, but somebody's with me. And he handed the phone off to um, Charles Brooks, who's an off-duty Manchester, New Jersey police sergeant who was hunting in the area and, and ran across Rap. Uh, sergeant Brooks then told police dispatch their location, which was uh, not accessible by motor vehicles. He then took Rap to an open area where he was transported by police vehicle uh, to a, a local medical center. And uh, according to Sergeant Brooks, it was Rap's dog, Petey, that actually uh, led to his owner being discovered. Uh, Sergeant Brooks saw the dog walking along a trail. He assumed the dog had wandered from its owner, and he thought, I should try to get the dog back. So he followed the dog's paw prints, and then he saw some footprints actually in the ground, uh, and he followed the footprints, which ultimately led him to rap. Uh, Manchester Police Chief Lisa Parker said in a statement, quote, the situation highlights the fact that a police officer is a police officer 24-7. We are truly fortunate that Sergeant Brooks was in the right place at the right time because without his help, there is no telling how this story would have ended. In the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, we thank the uh, good sergeant and the very good boy, Petey, it's a good boy, for uh, ensuring that Mr. Rapp made it back home to his family there on a Thanksgiving weekend. That is the time, uh, all the time we've got for you here in this edition of Bearing Arms Camera Company, but I do want to thank you again for being a part of the program today. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way, you will never miss a program, or just want the audio version, we've got you covered there as well. Uh, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, townhall.com's podcast page. You can find us there as well. Hope that you have a fantastic weekend. Get out and enjoy it. Hopefully the weather's going to cooperate with you. Deer season's still underway in some parts of the country. But uh, however your weekend ends up, we hope you'll be back with us on Monday for another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.